You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. What does it take to be an entrepreneur and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the Future of Entrepreneurship, a Prop G Pod special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. The state of Jammu and Kashmir is in crisis. A power grab by the Indian government has put the area on lockdown. There are curfews. Local politicians have been put on house arrest. Thousands of troops are patrolling the streets. Telephone networks and internet in the area have been shut down, so it's difficult to know exactly what's going on. But today on Worldly, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network, we're going to talk about what we do know. We're going to talk about the historical context for the Indian power grab that started all of this. And we're also going to talk about how the situation could lead to a very scary crisis with Pakistan. I'm Zach Beecham, here as always with Jen Williams and Alex Ward. Hello. Hi. Alex is once again coming to us from Europe. He is in a blanket fort, as I've done before. And Jen, I believe, is the only person who has never recorded under a blanket fort. Someday, inshallah. Jen, why don't you start us off with the backstory on what's going on in India and Pakistan? Yeah. Let's go back to 1947. British rule in India ended. India was then partitioned into two independent states, India and Pakistan. But they disagreed about this Jammu and Kashmir region, which wanted to be independent, but was coerced to essentially remain part of India. With Jammu and Kashmir now a part of India, it never really turned out to be an easy fit. Uh, the reason, of course, being, you know, India was pluralistic, but primarily Hindu, and, and Jammu and Kashmir was uh, India's only Muslim-majority area. And so fitting into sort of the broader scheme of the country, it always was a bit kind of out of place. And and really that Jammu and Kashmir people liked that because they liked that they had their own sort of autonomy and they had their own sort of culture and they didn't necessarily listen to New Delhi. Uh, they didn't really care about what was happening there. They felt separate completely. So it was always an awkward relationship, so to speak. Right. Now, it also has a slate of very particular rights that have been guaranteed by various different agreements. Part of this is because uh, the ruler of Kashmir, who then went to India uh, as part of this sort of whole situation at the creation of the state, negotiated with the Indian government to acquire basically self-determination rights, no? Yeah. So Article 370 of India's constitution codified the Kashmiri borders. So it basically laid out what India gets, what Pakistan gets. But crucially, it said that, okay, yes, Jammu and Kashmir are part of India, but this region can have its own constitution and can basically govern everything for itself, including, you know, education, tax policy, I mean, everything except for foreign and defense policy. 
New Delhi, the capital of India, would take care of those things. But everything else would basically be handled in Jammu and Kashmir. And Article 370 also forbade outsiders, so people who didn't live in Jammu and Kashmir, from buying any property there. That makes sense given the sort of uneasy situation of Jammu and Kashmir in the country there, right? Because you don't want the Hindu ethnic majority coming in and de facto displacing all right. of the Muslims in Jammu and Kashmir in the same way that, say, China has more forcibly done in Tibet and Xinjiang province. Um, and so you you had this situation where Jammu and Kashmir kind of had self-determination inside of India, and it lasted for a really long time. But starting in 2014, with the election of the current Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi, things started to get a little dicier. Yeah, to give an example of how sort of deep he is in this movement, at one point he was actually banned from the U.S. because he failed to stop a deadly anti-Muslim riot by Hindus while he was the governor of one of India's states. That made him kind of a, a persona non grata in the United States and, and in many places around the world. But hey, he ends up becoming prime minister and now he gets to espouse these ideas uh, along with his party in India. The, the difference between what Hindutva, which is the name of the Hindu nationalist ideology, and traditional Indian politics uh, is oriented around is, is something along the lines of a distinction between a pluralistic democracy, what you have in the United States without an official state religion, without there being official privileging of an ethnic majority, versus a country which is still democratic. It's not clear that, or at least there's no evidence that Modi actually wants to ban democracy per se, but one in which there's a special set of rights and privileges according to the Hindu majority. Uh, it's more akin to a far-right vision of what Israel should look like, I'd say, would be a rough analogy to bring in two really controversial topics right. in one place. Uh, than, than sort of a, a more typical pluralistic democracy in the way that India has long been styled and thought of itself. Right. So Modi gets elected as prime minister in 2014, and, and from the beginning, he basically starts to put into practice and into policy this vision of a, a more, you know, Hindu nationalist India. And then this May, he gets reelected with this huge margin, which basically gives him and his Hindu nationalist party a really big, strong mandate for their next five-year term, to basically carry out their big vision for how to transform India into this Hindu nationalist society that they envision. And he basically starts to do that right away. And part of that project involves bringing Muslim-majority Jammu and Kashmir into the fold of India proper, which the BJP, his party, had written into its party platform. And that brings us to where we are today. Right. They hadn't done anything on this topic, anything major on this topic until Monday right. of this week. And that's when the Home Secretary announced that India was going to revoke Article 370, which we had been discussing, the protections for Jammu and Kashmir. And on Tuesday, the measure passed both houses of parliament, and now it's policy. Uh, it could face a challenge to the court, uh, but Modi has spent a lot of effort reconfiguring India's court system in his favor. So it's hard to say whether or not the courts, despite this being an obvious threat to Indian pluralism, would actually overturn the policy. Now, I want to get into the details of what this revocation means specifically, right? How it changes the status of Jammu and Kashmir. All right, so this can get a little weedsy, but I'll try to do the basic uh, points here. So the basic points are that Jammu and Kashmir is no longer an Indian state, but instead is a what's called a union territory, which at its core means that India has way more control over it. It is part of the entire country. It has less of an ability to govern itself. So New Delhi has way more control over a union territory. 
So all that stuff about like just on its own governing its education policy, tax policy, et cetera, is out the window. Now New Delhi gets a, a greater say, and in fact, almost an entire say on how that happens. Uh, what will also end up happening here is that actually the territory that is known as Jammu and Kashmir will turn into two separate entities. There will be Jammu and Kashmir, which will still be majority Muslim, and there will be Ladakh, which is a remote mountainous area that's mostly Buddhist, um, and those will be two separate parts of, of India now. So it also does something else, which remember earlier we talked about how part of Article 370 said that outsiders outside of Jammu and Kashmir couldn't purchase and own land within the territory. Well, by revoking Article 370, that's gone now, which means people from outside of the region, including Hindus and anyone else, can come in and buy land now. And and this land buying provision that Jen just talked about, it is, it's crucial, crucial to this whole situation. We're going to go into more detail on that after the break and discuss the wider implications that this might have for South Asia. Vacations can be tricky. You already know how to book flights and hotels, but now the only thing you're missing is, you know, the actual travel experience. Because is it really a vacation if you're just sitting around like you would at home? You need a tool to get the most out of your time away. That's where Viator steps in. You can book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. What does it take to be an entrepreneur and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the future of entrepreneurship of Prop G Pod, special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back, folks. We are talking about Jammu and Kashmir, where things have gotten really dicey recently. Really dicey. Alex, why don't you uh, talk about the reaction on the ground to the Indian power grab? Yeah, so part of the complication here is that we don't really know too much of what's going on, because as we mentioned at the top of the show, you know, they the internet's been shut off, uh, there's little communication coming out, so there are little sort of tidbits creeping out of there, but we're still not 100% sure what's happening. But here's kind of the general picture we have. One is that we know political leaders from Jammu and Kashmir are under house arrest. We do know that schools have been closed. We do know that tourists have been evacuated. We do know that the Indian government has sent thousands more troops to patrol 
control the area and that they're basically, they put a curfew on people so they don't protest. Now, there are some protests that have happened in Jammu and Kashmir, a very brave thing to do. There are reports that maybe someone might have died, but that's hard to know. But anyway, there seems to be some sort of revolt. That said, we have seen some protests outside of the area. For example, some Pakistanis in Islamabad, Pakistan's capital, protests outside of India's embassy. And there were even, I believe Jen mentioned yesterday, there were some protests in, even in D.C. about this. Yeah, outside of the Indian embassy just the other day. So, obviously, people are furious. And I, if I lived in an area that had had autonomy and then had it stripped away, I would be angry too. But there's also an extra component, which is related to the land purchasing rules that we had discussed a little bit ago, right? Because if you're a resident of Jammu and Kashmir, and all of a sudden, not only do you not have control over your region, but an Indian nationalist government is allowing anyone from inside India to start buying land in your area, you have to be a little worried about some kind of forced demographic replacement. That's a euphemism for ethnic cleansing, which is, I think, a real possibility now that we have to talk about. Right. I mean, you have to remember, this isn't just like a theoretical fear, right? The the partition of India and Pakistan basically involved massive forced population transfers, trying to get all the Muslims to go to Pakistan and everyone else to kind of stay in India. And thousands of people died. It was an incredibly traumatic time. And so for these people who've been living essentially kind of stuck in the middle between these two countries, the idea that there could be another forced population transfer or that they could be essentially pushed out of their homes is a very real and tangible fear that in the region's not-too-distant past just happened. You also have on the other side people who, you know, may have had ties to the region, but when it was formed, because it was Muslim-majority, they left for whatever reason and haven't been able to go back. So there have also been people who were like, yay, I can finally go back to, you know, this area where my, you know, ancestors used to live. But again, there are Muslims in Jammu and Kashmir who are starting to get very worried that they are going to be essentially pushed out of their homes. And Pakistan's prime minister, Imran Khan, warned that a fight, meaning a war, could break out. There's already been escalation on the Pakistani side, right? They've kicked India's ambassador out of the country and will be refusing to send their own ambassador to India cut off economic ties, and have started the process of complaining to the United Nations about the entire situation, right? So this isn't just a sort of theoretical possibility of a crisis in relations between these two neighboring states that have fought several wars over this region. Like, they are in crisis now. The question is, do we have any reason to think it will get even worse than it already is? And I don't, I genuinely don't know the answer. I'm not even sure I have a sense of which way it's going to go. So one of the worries here is that, look, there's been an insurgency in Jammu and Kashmir for years, right? For decades, really. Thousands of people have died from it. And it's part of it is that, the, you know, that they don't want to be a part of India. And there's been speculation that Pakistan has fueled these kinds of, these kinds of insurgents. And so the chance that there could be like a fight breakout is somewhat true. We saw earlier this year, actually, where there was a terrorist attack in that area. India responded with its own airstrike. Pakistan responded to that. And there was where that that could escalate. It didn't, but like there is this chance, right? That there's more violence and it could grow and grow and grow. And the ultimate worry is that there could even be a nuclear war, right? Both Pakistan and India 
have nuclear weapons. They have yet to use them. The chance of this happening is extremely low. But this has always been one of the things that has worried people is that the Kashmir flashpoint, with all of its problems, with all of its tensions now rising, with its years of violence and, and, un, and you know unsteadiness, could just kind of grow out of control and, and go really, really bad. So the nightmare scenario here isn't just, you know, randomly they start fighting because of this, what's happening right now. Right. right? There has to be some kind of provocation. So there'd need to be, as you said, some kind of insurgency, some kind of terrorist attack. Or India moves so aggressively towards what we had described as ethnic cleansing beforehand that Pakistan feels like it has an obligation to get involved. Any one of these things could trigger further escalation down the line. And then you have two nuclear armed powers going to war, which is super scary, super scary. I I really can't overstate enough how terrifying that prospect is. That point about insurgency and how Pakistan has used militants in the region to kind of foment insurgency is really important to understand here because there are a lot of ways that this region could catch on fire and these two countries could fight that is below the threshold of full-scale nuclear war, but that is still incredibly dangerous and incredibly deadly, which is that, you know, Pakistan has used these militants for a long time as kind of a way to strike at India while still having plausible deniability that, like, oh, it wasn't us, it's just these rogue people in our territory. So if it starts to do that, or also if these militants in the region decide to just do things on their own, you could see some serious low-level is the way that we would describe it on a kind of global scale, violence, but very real violence in a place where there are just a lot of people trying to live their lives and send their kids to school. So I think it's important to understand that just because, you know, if we don't see a nuclear conflagration doesn't mean that there isn't real suffering potentially, you know, in the cards for these people. And I think it's also important to understand that there are ways that this could back down because of that nuclear standoff. There are incentives on both sides to not let it get that far. The fact that we mentioned earlier that they are going to be going to the UN, that Pakistan is going to the UN to bring this up, right? The fact that they are taking it out by pulling their diplomats. Like, those are early warning signs of conflict, but they're also not war, right? Like, they are using the international system. They are using the system of diplomacy to express their discontent, which is positive, right? Like, that's the point of the UN, was to, like, bring these conflicts to an international body so that people just didn't go to war. So I think in that sense, there are some positive signs that both sides maybe want to back this down. And I think India has given some indication how genuine, we don't know, but that it could potentially cede some control back if things calm down. Jen, I I want to be as optimistic as you on that. I mean, I, I agree that there are some ways to climb down, but I think that this issue is so sensitive and so... Uh, important that like unless Pakistan especially sees some sort of outcome out of this, right? Like if the UN Security Council does denounce India or somehow India reverses its decision, I don't really see how we climb down. Like this is such a massive issue. I mean, India didn't even consult Pakistan. It didn't consult the US on this. Like it just went ahead and did it. And that's just not how the Kashmir situation is has been dealt with in the past. I mean, this is pretty aggressive. And so I agree, there are ways to climb down, but I personally don't see it. And frankly, like what incentive does the UN Security Council have to even grab this issue at the moment? Preventing nuclear war would be the incentive, I would say. <laughs> to my mind, this is sort of a textbook example of how nationalist movements are scary, dangerous, and, and destabilizing on a global level, right? Because this really is 
not about foreign affairs or India's foreign policy or cementing it. It's about a vision of what India should look like. It's about an ideological impulse to seize control and assert that a religious majority can impose its will on minorities. And that kind of impulse does not necessarily respond to rational incentives in the way that we'd like or we'd like to think that they will. It's not clear what could make Modi, especially given how large his margin was in the last election, it's very hard to see him backing down short of there being a very, very serious risk of war, right? This is a major, major accomplishment that he's delivering to his ideological fellow travelers. And to my mind, means the situation's likely to get worse, probably a lot worse before it gets any better. So that's our show today. I want to thank our producer, Bird Pinkerton. I want to encourage you to rate, subscribe, and review Worldly wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, And uh, we're sorry for being a downer, but ethnic cleansing and potential wars, really serious. And and I hope that you all spend more time looking into this and and trying to understand what's going on there, too, because I think it's not well understood, but vitally important for the world. What does it take to be an entrepreneur, and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast, and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the future of entrepreneurship of Prop G Pod, special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the PropG pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. Claude 3 from Anthropic is your one-stop shop for enterprise AI. With models at every point of the price performance curve, you no longer have to make trade-offs between intelligence, speed, and cost. Claude 3 Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between skill and speed. And Haiku is the fastest and lowest cost model on the market, perfectly designed for high-volume, high-speed use cases. Join the thousands of enterprises who use Anthropic to navigate this new frontier. Visit anthropic.com slash Claude, C-L-A-U-D-E, today. Jumpstart your genius with Claude 3 by Anthropic.